To whom shall we go? From John chapter 6, verses 52 to 71. So this morning we conclude John chapter 6, which is the longest chapter in the New Testament. That's taken us five weeks to, to get to this point. And you would have noticed that bread is the main subject, the main theme throughout this chapter. And he brings out other themes and expectations that Jesus has to tackle. In the context of his ministry, the feeding of the 5,000 and the, the presentation of himself as the bread of life was in a real way, the, the, the turning point, the turning of the tide of, of national sentiment away from Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus' teaching made it clear that he was not going to conform to their populist, nationalistic views about the Messiah the one who was going to free them from the oppressor, the Romans at this this point. What's more, in this chapter, Jesus seems to be doing all he can to actually drive away as many people as he can from his ministry. It looks like Jesus didn't read any of the books about church growth and success in ministry. He didn't want to be invited to too many seminars around the world. And rather than seeking to grow his crowd, it appears that Jesus is deliberately trying to shrink it. Remember that at the start of this chapter, 5,000 men are feeding, plus 5,000, plus women and children, the rest, you're looking at maybe 15,000 people listening to him speak from 15,000. And when this chapter closes, he only has 12. He only has 12 and one of them, one of those 12 is actually going to be betraying him. How does that sound? For success. In all of this, what Jesus is doing, in all these verses, he's, he's issuing a call to commitment. And this has a dual purpose. Firstly, it clarifies his call, his, his mission and his ministry to those who will follow him. Secondly, it purifies the ranks of his disciples by effectively weeding out most of those who are not genuine in their faith, not genuine in their commitment. And this truth is found right throughout the scriptures, is it not? It takes many different forms, but uh, we know it as the separation of the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, and even the sheep from the wolves. 
So let's look at these verses and we're going to look at, first of all, the offence of the crowds. The offence of the crowds from verse 52 onwards. Then the Jewish began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. It appears that these words from Jesus are very offensive to these Jews. And if we were to take them literally, we would probably react in the same way. You don't have to be a vegan or a vegetarian to be offended by these words. He talks about eating human flesh and drinking human blood and, and this would, it would be enough to turn a lot of people off, wouldn't it? And, and they, they say, they're arguing, they're talking about, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? In other words, what, are these, what does he think we are? That we are cannibals. It was offensive to Jews for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because they took Jesus' words literally. Because you see, in the Old Testament it was forbidden for them to eat any meat with any blood in it. And the word kosher You would have heard it in Jewish circles. It's a word that means to cleanse and particularly refers to the preparation of meat. The Jews to this day cannot eat any meat that has not had all the blood drained from it. And there is this whole process that goes, they have to go through. But secondly, they're offended, I think, because inwardly they think to themselves, that we are better than this. We don't need all of this. Everywhere in scriptures there is this emphasis upon the necessity for blood, for, for a death in order to cure, to deliver, to deliver us from the grip of sin in our lives. Without blood there is no remission of sins. And, and so behind their protest, their, their protest I, I cannot help but feel that they they feel that their sins are not that bad, that it shouldn't have to take such drastic measures. It shouldn't, uh, it shouldn't require death to clear up their difficulties and their problems. This is why these Jews protest at Jesus' words. Many people today think that they are pretty good people. I would say that most people think that they're pretty good people. If I were to take a survey this morning, you're all tick the box and says, I'm pretty good. Hunky dory. I'm actually God's favourite. Compared to Paul Molitor. Oh yeah. Shouldn't be hard work. The doctrine of total depravity is not accepted by many Christians, let alone unbelievers. But somehow 
humanity is good and then we become bad because of influence of our parents, of the school system and society and everything else and then we become bad. But we actually, in, in and of ourselves, we are good. Whereas the Bible is very clear, it comes from the other way. It says, no, we're actually pretty bad. And we need a saviour. We're not just bad, we're really, really bad. We're condemned to hell. And people don't want to believe that their problems come from something so bad that it is within themselves. That in fact it requires a sacrifice. It requires somebody to atone for your sin. For your condemnation. It is interesting that the pagans of the first century accused the Christians, they were known to accuse the Christians of cannibalism because they knew what Jesus had said about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And they related this, they made a connection to this, to communion. They say they take part in communion and, and, and this is they're just promoting cannibalism. Funnily enough, or tragically enough, A few centuries later, the Roman Catholic Church came along and invented a way to literally eat his flesh. It is the doctrine of transubstantiation, where a priest can pray over a literal piece of bread, just a piece of bread, and after the prayer, change it into his flesh. This whole idea of transubstantiation was totally unknown. It was foreign to the early church. In fact, it is not mentioned, this transubstantiation, this whole thing was not mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. It is not mentioned in the Nicene Creed. It first first made an appearance late, just around about 1000 AD, and then it was formed into a creed by Pope Pius IV in the year 1564. 1,500 years later. You can see how heresy, I call it a heresy, it's got no, it's got no backup at all in the scriptures, how it can become something that is accepted by so many Christians, they don't even question it. The meaning of his flesh and blood is given by Jesus in very simple words. He said here, For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. You in me and I in you. He will speak similar words about the vine as well, doesn't he? True worship is the desire to merge with God for him to possess us and in turn we possess him. That is what Jesus says happens when we eat and drink his life. When we come and believe in him and keep keep coming 
to him. We keep believing in him. We are sustained. We are empowered. We are reinvigorated to continue to live the life that would be impossible for us to live in and of ourselves. This is what an intimate relationship with God looks like. Let's move to the offence of the disciples, verses 60 to 66. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus had known. Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Jesus always knows. He went on to say, this is why I told you that No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Jesus knocks on the door. Is the handle on the outside or is the handle on the inside? According to these words, the handle is on the outside. That is the reform view. And this is, this is the sovereignty of God. It's basically God opening the door and says, I'm coming in. It's not he's knocking on the door. Can I come in, please? Oh, Jesus is coming, guys. Come on, hide everything. He's coming. Okay, open the door. Jesus, you can come in now. Sort everything out, cleaned everything up, got all those, rid of all those magazines. Okay, you can come in. That's not what I'm reading here. Okay, what I'm reading is no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. I'm not making this stuff up. There's a handle on the door. There's no handle on the inside. In in fact, you can only open it from the outside. It is God, it is the Father who does this. There's, There's no way around this. I'm sorry. Yes, I know. There are different explanations that people come with, but you cannot get around this. It is an act of the Father. Some call it prevenient grace. Whatever you want to call it, you have to start with God. He is the one that does it, unless the Father has enabled them. And in verse 66 it says, From this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. One can see that toward the end of this chapter it becomes increasingly clear that doubt 
suspicion and hostility is increasingly mounting against Jesus. They were arguing back and forth amongst themselves, confused about Jesus and his words. When Jesus presented himself as Messiah, he refused, like I said before, he refused to accommodate their expectations, their nationalistic, their materialistic ideas and expectations. These people, these were the very people who moments earlier, at the beginning of the chapter, they wanted to make him king after he fed them. Now they want nothing to do with him. They're not interested in learning more. They don't want to hear more of his message on bread and flesh and blood. No, they're gone. This is an important message to leaders. Don't seek to attract the crowds. Jesus didn't. We shouldn't either. It is a message to everyone else. Don't follow the crowds. The crowds could be wrong. You follow the crowds when they come to Jesus, you follow the crowds when they leave Jesus. What's it going to be? Many in our day and age proclaim the gospel not in terms of spiritual demands, but proclaim the gospel or the so-called gospel in terms of material benefits. We make it sound as though God is a genie who is going to provide for some wonderful utopian life of unusual and continual blessings for whoever gives at least lip service to Christ. It doesn't work like that. Some people are troubled by the things they cannot understand, but the bigger group of disciples, they, they're not troubled by the things that they cannot understand. It's, it's because precisely because they understood what Jesus is saying, that's, be, that's the reason they left. It's not a matter of confusion. Someone said the Bible is not difficult to understand. It is difficult to accept. See the difference? Jesus' words were not difficult to comprehend but hard to cope with for it failed to line up with their distorted views and expectations and many people... They're going to stumble over this in the Christian faith. When people obey the truth they see here, when they obey the truth, they will be given more truth. The Bible also warns us that if we resist the truth, then that capacity to see and hear is hampered. It is stunted. 
This is the tragedy that happens to many. This is the problem that Jesus spoke of when he said, after the parable of the sower, the knowledge in in Matthew 13, verses 11 to 12, the, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about him because they'd gone as far as they could go. People who walk away from the things of God come up with many different reasons and excuses. I've heard them all as a pastor. It's usually they blame it on the pastor, the church, everything else. God hasn't met my expectations, that type of thing. At the bottom of it all is this this, this, there's a pride, a selfishness that fails to ultimately surrender to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. They're actually concerned about themselves and how they feel. They're not concerned about how the rest of the fellowship would feel once they stop coming or they walk away or whatever it is. It's about them. This generation which we live in now is increasingly concerned about the self, the pleasure of the self. I'm the most important person. I don't know about you, but I'm more important. That's the attitude. How did these disciples, the twelve, feel when they saw the rest of them walking away? Because those who are left are always adversely affected in some way when people choose to walk away. Sometime later, very soon, they would all get their chance to walk away. It was a time of tremendous time, unbelievable hardship and trial, the passion of Christ. They all walked away. And then Jesus, after the cross, had to restore them one by one for the task at hand. Friends, we are living in an hour when many are walking away from the things of God. This should not surprise us because it's exactly what the Bible said would happen in the last days. We are told that there will be a falling away. Yet when we see it happening all around us, we're still surprised and shocked because those falling away are family, friends, brothers and sisters who are part of the fellowship. And I think the verses that we have read this morning shed some light on this very real issue. 1 John 2.19 says this, 
They went out from us because they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belong to us. That is the sad news. It's a tragic news with eternal consequences. It's heartbreaking. The good news, the good news is that not everyone walks away. To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Verses 67 to 69. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now when Jesus said to them, you don't want to leave too, do you? I wonder if whether he asked this question with sadness in his voice or whether it was more like a, a stern challenge. It is clear that he would have let them go if they wanted to. He does not hold them against his will, against their will. At the same time, it is also true that the true and genuine believers won't quit. They cannot quit. They're going to continue. They're going to persevere no matter what. As we know, Peter, good old Pete, he had, he had moments of dumb stupidity but also moments of inspirational brilliance. And in response to Jesus' words, Peter says something wonderful, something incredibly beautiful, beautiful that, that, that he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? What is the alternative? Where are we going to go? And, and, and I think he covers a couple of things, his answer, because firstly, he talks about implied in that answer is the incomparable uniqueness of Christ. In his response, he's basically saying, Lord, we have investigated the alternatives. To be honest, you're not easy to live with. We don't understand you at times. We see and hear you do things that simply blow our minds. You offend people whom we think are important. We have looked, however, at some of the alternatives but I want you to tell you this, Lord, we have never found anyone who can do what you do. To whom shall we go? Secondly, his implied in Peter's words are his unblemished character, the unblemished character of Jesus. Notice Peter's words, we have come to believe and to know. We have come to believe and to know, it implies a process of discovery, of learning. It is a journey. 
this, this process, it could have taken months, perhaps even years by, the, by this stage. But Peter is saying, we have watched you and how you do what you say and say what you do. You mean it. Your integrity is impeccable. More than that, there is nothing wrong in you. There is nothing wrong with you. You are the holy, sinless one of God. You fit the prophecies, all the prophecies. You have drawn us, you have compelled us to accept, to believe, to truly commit ourselves to the fact that there is no one else like you. Where else are we going to go? We get knocked about, don't we, through the different things in life. It doesn't take long in our pre-meeting conversations or in our post-meeting conversations on Sundays or Bible study, whenever we meet, to know that there's a lot of loads out there that we carry. And true Christians... Know, however, that despite the many things that we don't understand why it's happening or what is happening, we know deep in our hearts that we simply cannot walk away. We cannot leave. If you have found Jesus to be the way Peter described him, where else can you go? Yes, there will come a time of weakness in in Peter's life when he denied the Lord, he failed him. But even as he failed, Jesus was already intervening for him. And Jesus told him that. And that and that it was a time he already Jesus was already foresee that he was going to come back. And Jesus went and, and, and sought him and found him and, and, and built him up again. And and Recommission him for the task that was at hand. Jesus restored him. because So Peter did not, even though he walked away, he did not walk away forever. Who does that? Who restores someone? True believer except someone like Jesus. And this is the testimony of those who walk with him and follow him the ups and downs of life, you read any of the testimonials of the saints and you will know exactly the pain and the struggle that they've been through. And they tell you the story, not to sell books, they tell you the story so that you and I can continue in the faith. That's why the stories are there. They're so important. And then in verses 70 to 71, betrayal. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he meant, of course, Judas Iscariot. Though he was one of the twelve, was later to betray him. The first group of disciples will not stay with Jesus all the way. They drop out. Then there are those who cannot leave no matter what happens. And finally, there is one who stays back, but he wasn't he, he really was never committed 
and he won't leave, but he's still part of the, the 12. But ultimately, his betrayal is going to be pretty deep. And I think that in most congregations you will find these group of people. Some of you have started well, but you will drop out. You will not be bothered with growing in the faith. You will go on and do the wrong thing again and again and eventually you will simply drop out. It has happened before, it will happen again. There may be some here who want to stay with Jesus or even close to Jesus for their own purposes. You want to appear to be a Christian but you're not. You want to use God for your own purposes. You like to have the warmth of all of this stuff but deep inside you know, no, it doesn't make sense. But I still love the group, I love the fellowship, I love all of this but no. You are the ones who will one day betray Jesus. And that is sad. And there are some of you, I hope it is most of you, who will never leave. You have found too much. You have learned too much of what it is to walk with Christ. You have eaten his words. They are part of you now. You have been ministered to and fed and strengthened by the Lord Jesus. You know the comfort of his presence. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You can never give him up. You may wonder, perhaps for a time, but like the prodigal son who came back to himself, you will come back to yourself. You will remember that it was what it was like in the Father's house and you will want to be back there. You, you want to come back there. And when you do, he will receive you with open arms and you restore you perfectly. But not everyone walks away. In fact, some people make a, a total commitment to the Lord and to his will for the rest of their lives. I hope that is you. And once you have felt the powerful touch of the Almighty God on your life, that you, you just want to continually walk in His glory through the valley of the shadow of death and, and, and know that it's only a small time that you're walking through this because eventually you'll get home. You have tasted that the Lord is good and you want to keep feeding on him. You have experienced his best and you will never be satisfied with any other meal. You will never be satisfied drinking from any other fountain than the fountain, the pure fountain of the Lord himself. 
May we be a people who love the Lord from our hearts and follow him all our days. If you thought this journey is long and hard, this journey is just a a blip in the light of eternity. The journey continues. And I want to be, I want to spend eternity with the rest of you. I want you all there. I don't want anybody falling away. But you need to be honest and truthful and say, Lord, I want to be counted among those who will finish the journey, no matter the cost, because ultimately whatever cost we pay is nothing compared to the cost that he bore for us. Praise be to God for his grace and mercy in our lives. To whom shall we go? To the Lord himself. Let us pray. And as I pray, 